Exodus 14, 1 to 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord said, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihararoth in front of Baal Sephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord, and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, 
Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked in dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, we, um, as we come now to uh, address and consider uh, stories that are that are to some of us familiar and to many of us very, very strange. Um, we ask that you will uh, be our teacher. It's an audacious thing to ask, but we ask it audaciously, boldly. Um, will you be among us as teachers? For those of us who aren't even sure that you're around, will you make yourself plain? You're a good communicator. Please communicate. And for those of us who are walking with you, uh, will you deepen us, strengthen us, and again, make yourself clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. And uh, it's helpful if you turn back uh, to the reading from Exodus. That's that first long reading um, that Debs so uh, well read. Thank you, Debs. Well done. Um, the, uh, we're continuing this series in the book of Exodus. And um, it's the story of Israel being liberated from Egypt. And um, I'm going to begin today by asking a, a just an audaciously, an extremely churchy question. Here's a very, very churchy question that I'm going to ask. Um, do you know what it means to be saved? Now, um, let, me, let me explain why, why I say that. If, if you do not, it's a very churchy question, right? If you do not have a Christian background... Um, then if you've hung around with Christians, you may have heard Christians use that kind of language. Uh, people talking about having been saved, or asking other people, are you saved? Or, or when did you get saved? Or, 
or, or something like that. And my guess is that um, if you do not have a Christian background, then that, that, just, that kind of language, it just makes no sense at all. Because nobody talks like that. It's like, what do you mean am I saved? Like, is there something I need to know about right now? I mean, what, you know, is there, do I need to duck? What is going on? It's, it's just a, only church people talk like that. Um, but on the other hand, even if you grew up in church, there's a strong likelihood that you don't know what it means either. Um, because Christians regularly grow up in church using saved language. Um, I got saved. When did you get saved? Here's how you get saved. Things like that. We use that language, and very often we do not really understand what we're talking about. And we can use it in a sentence very persuasively, and everybody in the tribe will know that we're part of the tribe, but nonetheless, we don't really know what it means. It's a little bit like a parrot. Parrots can say things, as I understand it, but they don't know what it, ta- what it means. What does it mean to be saved? And why does it matter? Why ask that question? Well, it, it, here's part of the reason it matters. Um, if, if you look at, at the story of the Bible... And if you look at classical Christianity down the last 2,000 years, um, the, the identity of being somebody who has experienced salvation is very central to, to the identity of a Christian. So here's what I mean. If you could take a Christian soul or a Christian heart, and if you could somehow, this is weird, but if you could somehow peer into it, kind of pull back the veil and look into a Christian heart, a Christian soul, and if you could kind of uh, pass by our presenting identities, if you could pass by our, um, our national identity, and if you could go underneath uh, the way we've experienced um, uh, our, our racial background or our gender experience, or if you could go down underneath our age and our generation and all of these things that gather together and make us uh, and, and compose our presenting identities, uh, underneath our, exp- our accomplishments and our failures, and if you could get right to the heart, the animating center of the Christian heart, the animating center of our identity, what you would find in a Christian soul is that stamped upon the inner animating center of the Christian soul are these words, I have been saved by Christ alone, and that tells me who I am more deeply than anything else does. Now, if that's true, then it means this. If you're a Christian, if you identify as a Christian, and yet you don't really understand what it means to be saved, then um, there's a deep way in which you do not know who you are. And that's a thing. And on the other hand, if you're considering Christianity and you do not know what it means to be saved, then there's a way in which, despite all the things that you might know about Christianity, um, it's still superficial until you know this deep idea. What does it mean to be saved? Now... Why am I asking this question today? Uh, Two big reasons. First, our passage today, the story of Exodus, the dividing of the Red Sea, is the moment that the nation of Israel came to understand what it is, what it means to be saved by God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to use this passage as our teacher to answer this question, what does it mean to be saved? The other reason we're going to look at it is today, as Colin has pointed out, is Christ the King Sunday. And for a Christian... You cannot understand what it means for Christ to be our king without understanding what it means for Christ to save us. So, what does it mean to be saved? We're going to look at Exodus, and we're going to, I'm going to point out three things. We're going to understand vulnerability, conflict, and then we'll get to answering the question, what does it mean to be saved? Let me explain. First of all, Vulnerability. Now, um, we need to back up and catch up the story in the book of Exodus. So this is previously 
in the book of Exodus. Um, if you've been with us, you know how the story goes. The story opens and Israel is enslaved in, uh, in Egypt. Um, Egypt is a superpower and Israel is a minority. Uh, Egypt holds all the cards and Israel is deeply powerless and has no hope of freedom. However, unexpectedly, God breaks in and God uses this guy Moses, who's not very impressive in and of himself, but God uses Moses, sends Moses to Pharaoh and Moses says, Pharaoh, God says you need to let his people go. And Pharaoh's not used to being bossed around and so he doesn't take kindly to it and he says no. And then what happens is God institutes 10 rounds of divine sanctions, uh, more commonly called plagues. And these divine sanctions, these plagues, are designed to uh, pressurize Pharaoh to get him to do the right thing, to get him to uh, lay down his injustice and to let Israel go free. Finally, long story short, he breaks. We saw this a couple weeks ago. He breaks. On Passover night, he says, all right, get out of town. Get out of here. You're free. Now, that's where we pick up the story here. And I want to show you something very strange. Israel has left the cities of Egypt, and they are all heading towards the border. But the moment that Israel is free of Egypt, the very first day, God leads them not into safety, but counterintuitively straight into an experience of vulnerability. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1 and 2. Uh, God tells Moses to make Israel camp next to the Red Sea. Um, now, what you have to understand is that that is tactical suicide. Why? Well, it's an indefensible position for Israel. It means that they're right up next to a sea, and therefore they are trapped next to the sea. Think about it. They've got a potentially hostile enemy behind them. Egypt. Egypt has let them go free, but they don't know that that's going to stay that way. And in front, that's behind them. In front of them, they have an uncrossable sea. They, you know, they don't have any boats. And therefore, if Egypt comes after them, Israel is going to find themselves uh, trapped their toast. Now, all that's pretty obvious, but despite all that, God purposefully makes Israel camp right there where they are most vulnerable. Why? Well, keep watching. Do you remember what happens? The worst case scenario unfolds. Pharaoh changes his mind, decides to attack. Israel feels extremely vulnerable because it's exactly what they are, vulnerable. And then they, understandably, panic. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, they say to Moses, <clears throat> Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you when we were still in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, watch those verses. Do you notice Israel's nostalgia for slavery? This is not the last time. Okay, they've just gotten their freedom. I mean, hours ago. But then the moment they feel vulnerable, the moment they feel unsafe, they feel threatened, their immediate knee-jerk reflex 
is to run back to refuge in slavery. Slavery is Israel's safe place. Oddly enough, they feel most secure when they are enslaved. Or put differently, Israel's heart has a secret little alliance with their slavery. Now, why? What's going on there? Well, consider this. All through Exodus, we've seen this theme again and again. We're going to see it in the future. Self-reliance. Do you remember this? Self-reliance is a phony kind of freedom. Uh, most of us imagine that freedom, do you imagine this? Freedom is built on self-reliance. You probably don't say it this way, but do you live like this? Uh, if I'm going to be free, then it's going to be up to me, right? It's got to be up to me. Who else is it going to be up to? Okay, that makes intuitive sense. However, Exodus is designed to debunk that whole idea. All through the story of Exodus, the people that are most self-reliant, that are most re uh, confident in themselves, are also the people who are most totally enslaved. Uh, Pharaoh is a great example. Pharaoh is deeply self-reliant, but nevertheless, counterintuitively, he is enslaved by his own lust for power. And now, kind of similarly, Israel has a taste of freedom. And instinctively, they believe what Pharaoh believes, and all of us tend to believe, is that freedom, if we're going to have it, is based to some extent upon me. It's based to some extent upon us. It's based to some extent upon self-reliance. If I'm going to stay free, then I'm going to have to look to the resources I can bring to the table in this moment. Now, that makes a lot of sense, does it not? Except self-reliance is a great marketer, but when you actually buy the product, it's deeply fragile, and it ends up being a traitor. Why do I say that? Well, it's a phony kind of freedom. Look back at the story. Here they are beside the sea. The moment they first experience vulnerability, they are looking at an enemy that is chasing after them that they know that they cannot defeat. And in that moment, their reliance upon their self just shatters and breaks. And all of a sudden, their self-reliance, its fragility becomes clear, but then also it turns into a traitor. Why do I say it's a traitor? Because self-reliance begins whispering in the ear of Israel saying, you do not have in yourself what it takes to stay free normally, but the only thing you can rely on within yourself is you can sell yourself. You can go back into slavery. The one thing you can rely on is the fact that you can sell yourself right back into your servitude. Run back. The smartest thing you can do, says self-reliance, whispering in Israel's ear, the smartest thing you can do is to run back to slavery. That's your safe place, and you really belong there all along. Self-reliance isn't freedom. It's a slave trader. And it's taking them back. And that's why the Lord leads Israel purposefully, not to a place where they can feel safe within their own reliance upon self, but rather to a place where they feel the fragility of self-reliance, in other words, a place where they're vulnerable. He brings them purposefully, tactically, face-to-face -face with their own vulnerability. And he brings them face-to-face -face with their deep need, not their self-reliance, but their deep need to be rescued. And he does that 
so that in this moment, God can kill their self-reliance. God, in this moment, wants to execute their slave trader. Now, pause, because while we're at it, Emmanuel, God wants to kill self-reliance in us, too. Um, self-reliance, like I said, is a very good marketer, and you've probably been uh, listening to its marketing since you were, uh, since you understood language. Be self-reliant. That's what it means to be free. But despite that, the reality is that self-reliance holds us in a secret kind of bondage. Because when we look at other people that we identify as self-reliant, they look really, really impressive and amazing. But the problem is when you are relying upon yourself, it's great right up until the point where we face something that we cannot handle. And newsflash, you're going to face things in your life that you cannot handle, a lot of it. And when we come face to face with things that we cannot handle, what happens is that the human heart that is relying upon self starts to go berserk. We start to go crazy. We get insecure. And then our insecurity turns into fear, and we panic, and we get defensive. And in that moment, we will do almost whatever we can to get back into control. Self-reliance is fragile, and it's a traitor. It turns on us. It's a sham. And for as long, Emmanuel, as we coddle self-reliance, we'll never really be saved, and we will never really know what it means to be free. It's a phony kind of freedom. And that's why self-reliance in us has to die. And it dies when we find ourselves utterly vulnerable before God. That's when it dies. Okay. In order to understand what it means to be saved, you have to under first understand the experience of vulnerability, that we need rescue. But on the other hand, secondly, you have to understand how God enters into conflict with evil. Let me show you this. Look back at the text. Do you notice that several times, now we're going to look at Pharaoh more. Do you notice that several times God says, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart? Did you catch that? How do you deal with that? Um, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and uh, he's going to try to kill Israel, and then I'm going to destroy him and gain glory over Egypt. That's what he says several times. Now, um, what's going on there? I am, Emmanuel, I'm aware that this is actually super troubling for a lot of us. <clears throat> so let me say three things real quick. First, uh, there's an element of mystery here. Um, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Um, to my view, nobody, nobody entirely knows exactly how God, the mystery of how God deals with a, a heart like Pharaoh. We know some of it, but we don't know all of it. There's mystery. Number two, um, I want to talk about this more. And actually, um, what I'd like to do is after the service, um, I'm going to hang out over there, and if you want to talk about Exodus and what it means that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, um, there's a bunch more to say. I'd love to talk about it. So I'm going to be over there. Come find me after the service, and we'll chat. Thirdly, here's a little bit of what's going on in the passage. Take a look at it. It is not that God is reaching into Pharaoh's heart and producing evil in Pharaoh's heart that isn't there otherwise. That's not what's happening. It's rather that the Lord is orchestrating a situation where the evil already present in Pharaoh's heart becomes unmistakably clear. Let me explain. All through Exodus, Pharaoh is consistently 
addicted to himself. He loves his power, and he loves his self-reliance, and he loves his security. And at every moment, whenever he can choose himself, his power, his security, his self-reliance, he just grabs on it. He grabs at it like Gollum grabs after the ring. And in this story, what happens is that the Lord sets up a kind of sting operation. He puts Israel in a vulnerable position knowing that Pharaoh's going to see Israel in a vulnerable situation and it's going to trigger his utter commitment to self. It's going to trigger Pharaoh's uh, lust for power, for self-reliance, for control, and that's going to move him to reach out after Israel to try to capture or kill them. Pause. When Israel feels vulnerable, they run to enslavement. We'll see this again in the story later on. When Pharaoh feels vulnerable, he runs to enslave others. What do you do when you feel vulnerable? Okay, but why does the Lord set up this sting operation? The Lord here is courting conflict with evil. Which is a little counterintuitive. Let me slow down and try to explain. Think with me here. Any authority that tolerates corruption participates in that corruption, right? I think that's pretty straightforward, is it not? If you turn a blind eye to corruption and you're in a place of authority whose responsibility is to deal with it, if you turn a blind eye to it, then you're participating in that corruption. You're part of it. And all through the scripture, the Lord just simply won't do that. The the Lord uh, just doesn't tolerate corruption. Uh, The Lord doesn't simply limit evil. The Lord looks at evil with an infinite kind of ferocity. And so here the Lord intends to bring evil to battle so that he can destroy it forever. And that brings us to his strategy with Pharaoh. Because the Lord has warned Pharaoh many, many times, Pharaoh, you got to let my people go and you got to stop your injustice. Lay yourself down, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh refuses again and again. And therefore the Lord responds by orchestrating events so that Pharaoh's guilt becomes an unmistakable matter of public record. And then... The Lord in this story defeats Pharaoh so that the Lord's justice can become an unmistakable matter of public record. And the way it's put in the text is that you see God's glory, his true goodness, his holiness, his beauty, precisely in the way he takes combat against evil and destroys it. Now, everybody breathe. Take a deep breath. I know this is super troubling. We're going to talk about it over there, okay? Come, let's talk. But now we're finally ready to ask the question, what do we mean, what does it mean to be saved? And here's what it means to be saved, Emmanuel. Salvation is when the Lord rescues you from a disaster that would otherwise overwhelm you. Go back to the story. Verse 13, imagine the scene. Egypt is charging Israel is panicking, total vulnerability. And verse 13, Moses says to the people, fear not and stand firm 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you this day. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, that word silent there at the end, it doesn't just mean be quiet. It does mean that. But it also means be utterly passive. And here's what Moses is saying. Moses is saying, Israel, you are in the midst of vulnerability. Every ounce of self-reliance in you is useless. In fact, it is your enemy. Israel, you cannot lift a finger to help yourself right now, so shut up and watch. Watch the Lord rescue you. The Lord fights your battle. The Lord will fight for you, and you will know, Israel, what it means to be free when you watch the Lord rescue you from a disaster that would otherwise overwhelm you. And then the Lord does three things to rescue and save Israel. First, he body blocks the Egyptian army. Look at verse 19. The, do you see how, what happens? The angel of the Lord moves around and places himself in between the Egyptian army and the Israelite army to protect Israel. The Lord makes himself to be a shield. You know what a shield is? You know what a human shield is? This is a divine shield. Secondly, the Lord opens up a way of escape that is utterly miraculous. He divides the Red Sea so that Israel can go through on dry land. No boats, just walking. And then thirdly, the Lord judges evil by destroying the Egyptian army. And the result is verse 30. Look at verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And that moment changed everything. From that moment on to this very day, the whole identity of Israel is shaped by this story. And they never forget it. It's Israel's deepest identity is um, we are a people saved by the Lord. We're not defined by our self-reliance. We're not defined by our accomplishments. We are de not defined by our previous slavery, but rather we are defined by the Lord's salvation. The Lord did for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and the Lord delivered us from a disaster that would otherwise overwhelm us, and that is who we are. Now, I say that that is Israel's identity from this point forward. Actually, that's not entirely accurate. That's the way it was supposed to work, but it didn't quite work like that. And Do you know why? you got to read the rest of Exodus and actually the rest of the Old Testament. Because what you find is that from this time forward, Israel is free from Pharaoh's army, but Israel is not yet free from Pharaoh's heart. They share in the dynamics of Pharaoh's heart. Watch the unfolding story of the rest of the Old Testament, and you find that Israel is just as committed to self-reliance and fundamentally to self as is Pharaoh. They do all sorts of things that Pharaoh does. They are committed to self just like Pharaoh, and that means that Israel is committed to sin and injustice in the very similar way to what Pharaoh is. And as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, you see that that is an utter disaster. Why is that a disaster? It's a disaster because it means that Israel is guilty before God and is culpable for God's ferocious and, uh, 
ferocity against injustice, just like Pharaoh was. So that just like Exodus makes Pharaoh's injustice a matter of public record, the rest of the Old Testament makes Israel's injustice a matter of public record. And therefore, the question that hangs over Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament is, what is it that God's going to do with Israel? What is it that he's going to do with his own people? Is God just going to overlook Israel's guilt because they happen to be Israel and not Egypt? Is God going to tolerate, just kind of turn a blind eye to their injustice? Put differently, is God a partisan? Is he committed to justice right up until the point when his own tribe is under scrutiny? And the Bible comes and says, no. God must, just, must judge Israel just like God must judge Egypt. Because God must judge evil in all its forms. And so, Emmanuel, that means that we're with Israel here. Because this explains part of the reason that when we feel vulnerable, remember, what I asked, what, what do you do when you're vulnerable? If you're like most of us, when you're vulnerable, those are the moments that we are most likely to lash out like Pharaoh or to run to our favorite little slaveries like Israel. We run to ourself and we protect ourselves because we are deeply committed to ourselves, and that leads us to things like sin and injustice and corruption and a lack of integrity and all of those sorts of things. And the, the danger for us and the warning for us Emmanuel, is that we dare not trust in self-reliance. Emmanuel, there is no salvation for us that originates in us. It must come from outside us. Which is to say we need salvation. We need the Lord to rescue us from the disaster that would otherwise overwhelm us, and it's a disaster that is rooted in our own deep commitment to our own selves. Turn over to the gospel reading. This is the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And do you notice how everybody taunts Jesus? The guards say, save yourself, Jesus. If you're a king, save yourself. This is Christ the King Sunday. If you're a king, save yourself. And one of the criminals that's being uh, executed right next to Jesus joins in and says, hey, come on, if you're the Christ, then rely on yourself and save yourself. Prove that you're a king. Of course, the unspoken assumption is that kings always rely on themselves. This is the unspoken assumption is that kings, real kings, always act like Pharaoh. But they bring up a good point. Why doesn't Jesus save himself? I mean, he's the one human who can rely on himself. He's the one who could, he's the one human who could legitimately rely upon himself. Why doesn't he? He could have. Why doesn't he? Well, here's why. Because Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Why doesn't he rely upon himself and save himself? Because he's the king. And real kings, the king that the Lord desires, the king that bears the Lord's authorization and affirmation is a king who lays down his life for those whom he leads. He doesn't put himself first, he puts others first. And therefore, what was Jesus doing upon the cross? He was doing exactly what God was doing at the Red Sea only much, much, much bigger. What did God do at the Red Sea? Well, he body blocked the Egyptian army. That's what Jesus was doing upon the cross. 
Jesus is body blocking the disaster that we deserve. Jesus is shielding us from the punishment and the justice that our own selfishness and sin deserves. And do you remember how God's justice came down on the Egyptian army and destroyed that instrument of evil? So also, that's what Jesus is doing upon the cross. On the cross, God's justice against evil is coming down upon our representative and our substitute upon Jesus Christ. And you remember how how God opened up a miraculous path of escape for Israel. That's what God was doing upon the cross in Christ. Jesus' suffering was opening up a miraculous path through disaster and to salvation and to an ultimate kind of freedom so that we can be saved from God's judgment for forever. That's what's happening upon the cross. And you look at me and you ask, Jim, how do you know that that's what was happening upon the cross? To which I respond, look at what Jesus says to the other criminal. The other criminal beside him. One criminal says, rely on yourself and save yourself. And the other criminal says, what are you talking about? We deserve this. We are standing under the just judgment of God. But Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And that criminal in that moment renounced all self-reliance and became utterly, completely vulnerable with his arms outstretched, naked there, literally dying upon a cross. And he reaches out in the midst of his vulnerability and he says, Jesus, will you deliver me from a disaster that will otherwise overwhelm me? Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? How in the world did he think that Jesus was going to come into a kingdom in that moment? I do not know, but he did. And Jesus responds, I tell you today, This very day you will be with me in paradise. I am the king. I am the king who lays down his life for those whom he leads. I am God's true king. And I am the savior of the world. And this day is your day of salvation. And from that moment forward and for the last 2,000 years, that criminal has had a new identity. That man has not been mainly known by the fact that he's a criminal, nor a failure, nor a death row inmate. No, he has not been known by any of those things stamped across his soul has been for these last 2,000 years in paradise with Jesus Christ. His identity has been, I was saved by Christ forever. That man knows what it means to be saved. Emmanuel, do you know what it means to be saved? I'm not asking if you can use it in a sentence. Do you taste it? I mean that if we could right now look into your heart and if we could get back beyond all of your very impressive identities and if we could get underneath all the things that you curate so well and you do, man, you're good. And if we could get down to the animating beating center of your soul, what would it say? And I wonder if for some of us what it says there is I am desperately trying to be self-reliant. And if that's true, ask yourself this question. Is that why you're so scared to be vulnerable? And is that why we run to our secret little slaveries? And is that why we are so threatened and frightened? And is that why we have integrity... Right up until the point where we don't. 
And is that why we enjoy re-looking out at other people's flaws and pointing them out? Because at least that can tell us I'm not that bad. And friends, if any of that fits, please, this is the day of freedom. This is the day of salvation. Lay it down. Get vulnerable. Go into that place of utter panic where we are naked before God, utterly vulnerable, and there feel the appropriate, righteous, and ferocious justice of God against all of our sin. But then, in the midst of that place of utter and infinite vulnerability, that is the place where we look to the cross of Christ and we hear the great and beautiful voice saying, fear not and stand firm. And see the salvation which the Lord wrought for you upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there the Lord fought for you. There the Lord endured all suffering for you. There the Lord defeated all your sin and all your guilt. And there Jesus Christ became your savior and he became your king. And when you believe that, Emmanuel... Then the Lord will reach down into the center of your soul and he will tattoo upon the flesh of your heart, saved by Christ forever. That is who you are. And you will never be the same. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.